Ray. People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door, as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it is money they have, and peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game. And it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick they'll have to brush them away from their faces. Ray, when the bank opens in the morning, they'll foreclose. People will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Film 89 podcast. My name is Steve Namos and I am a writer for film89.co.uk. In a change to our regular broadcast, our guru Sky is not with us tonight, but joining me all the way from the US of A is our very own comic book hero, the Prince of Gifts, the Quasar Sniffer himself, Mr. John Arminio. John. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be uh it's a pleasure to be talking to oh anybody right now. <laughs> well, I was gonna ask how is it how are you keeping in these difficult times? But I think that we're all just bobbing along, aren't we? I'm in a fortunate situation. I'm sheltering in place with some family members and uh, um I know there are people way worse off than me, so I'm grateful for my current situation. And is all your family well? Yes, everyone is healthy and well. 
That's good to know. It is a strange, strange time to be living in, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, we're trying to depend on our government to <laughs> <laughs> act responsibly and uh, in the best interest of science and health, and it's not happening. <laughs> well, you know, you've got to have something to talk about. There's, yeah. uh, <laughs> there's an old um, Chinese curse, which I, I think is perfect for this time. It says, uh, may you live in interesting times. And times have never been more interesting. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, as I kind of alluded to, you are, you work in the comic book industry. Mm-hmm. How is the coronavirus affecting that? Because I would imagine print media, you know, it hasn't been, it's been in a bit of a decline for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that the um, comic books have been caught in that to a, an extent. So um, how is this affecting, I mean, you know, on top of all that? Not great, uh, because comic books in America are basically distributed through one company. So every publisher goes through Diamond Comics Publishing. And about a a few weeks ago, uh, Diamond stopped receiving new product, meaning that even if the publishers continued to produce, they could not get it to stores. So as of right now, the whole industry is at a standstill. Um, And I think... Uh, individual publishers are trying to brainstorm workarounds uh, to try and get product to stores, but nothing concrete has come out yet. So there's just one distributor in the whole of the yeah. United States. Yeah. That surprises me. Yeah, uh, it's a monopoly. Um, and yeah. so examples like this is why monopolies are bad, because if they stop doing what they do, an entire industry, which affects you know retail and art artists and you know the 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 janitors who work at marvel and dc in the offices the the accountants everybody is now not working because diamond shut stores and i mean due to this pandemic that would probably be happening anyway because comic book stores are not essential business um but yeah things things are kind of chaotic at the moment so we're just kind of waiting to see what happens uh once the pandemic eases yeah, I, I have to admit, I would have thought, you know, this is my own naivety, of course, but I would have thought that maybe you would have one or two main distributors, you know, the big guys, and then a lot of independence underneath. But that's not the case then. No, there are ways that you can develop like direct relationship with, with publishers, but then Diamond could say, well, then we're not going to distribute to you. Uh, and so that's inconvenient. <laughs> that is... That is appalling. That is, yeah. um, you know, I, I, obviously my idea of what it means to be um, American comes from the movies and TV, and that seems un-American. Yes. Uh, I think, you know, if we're looking about, if we're thinking about ideals versus reality, I think, you know, the, the current crisis is kind of a, a flashpoint for that difference. But I think um, if I can do a cheesy transition, um, I think... Field of Dreams is a wonderful representation of how we, we can actually manifest the dreams of our potential through the metaphor of baseball. In these strange times of lockdowns and um, quarantines, you know, when we've got social distancing, is you know, people are talking about that more than they're talking about the social media at the moment. Uh, yeah. It's nice to be able to turn to a subject the, like the movies and sport because sport is being cancelled indefinitely at the moment it's decimated and as you've alluded to tonight we've got a bit of a double header we're going to start off by talking about one of the greatest sports movies of all time one of my favorite movies of all time field of dreams and then extending the discussion to cover some of the great baseball movies out there now if anybody hasn't seen field of dreams we will be talking spoilers especially one huge spoiler which kind of anchors the whole movie so if you haven't seen it yet now is the time to press pause rush off see this fantastic movie and then come back and play again before we start, <laughs> this is what 
I read today, this is the IMDb description of Field of Dreams, right? Like I say, it's one of the most inspiring films. And this, and I'm going to throw this over to you, right? What do you think of this description, okay? An Iowa corn farmer, hearing voices, interprets them as a command to build a baseball diamond in his fields. He does, and the 1919 Chicago White Sox come. That's it. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I look in very, very broad strokes, I guess, but with no, John Costner, the first 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, yeah, but what, what's interesting about Kevin Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, is that he's not a corn farmer. He's, no, he's not. a 60s idealist who somehow ended up owning a farm because, like, he, he and his wife kind of like didn't know what to do. And with, he seems as surprised life. as anybody else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so, it, of course, once you see the movie, you kind of think, "Oh, well, he was kind of pushed by destiny to own this farm, so then he could then he could be able to hear the voice," um, because he's just not a farmer. No, no, which no. is why he because I think a farmer would really balk at destroying your own crop once it's fully grown to build a, a baseball field. It would uh, go against but, everything that they yeah they believed in. Yes. It'd be like if I did my taxes on, like, if I tore up Amazing Fantasy 15 to write down, like, my tax returns or something. Like, it just, it's not done. <laughs> well, I think that uh, I, I also read on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not a big fan of Rotten Tomatoes. It's a, a bit of a gateway to reviews, and that's about it for me. But yeah. there's a line on there which I think sums up a little bit better. He says, he realizes that the ball field has been divinely ordained to give a second chance to people who have sacrificed certain valuable aspects of their lives. I think that's uh, a better description. Yeah, it's a more thematic des- description. I kind of like that. Maybe you can agree or disagree with me, but uh, the opening scenes to me always remind me of Citizen Kane because in Kane we have a very ominous scene, and then we hear the words which are going to, you know, springboard us for the rest of the movie, Rosebud. Mm-hmm. And then we have a news on the march. Uh, it's a newsreel all about the life of you know this person, Charles Foster Kane. In Field of Dreams, they do it the other way around. They have a montage to start of John Kinsella's life and then the birth of Ray Kinsella and the, the facts about their lives, but none of the truth. And then Ray is in the field and he hears the voice, if you build it, he will come. I think that's interesting because I think it's almost the... Um, inverse of uh, the life of Cain because Cain's sort of raison d'etre for most of his life was building Xanadu, uh, this sort of in- insane construction project. And that sort of like every piece he added to Xanadu was a piece he took away from his own soul. Whereas Ray, the more he puts himself into the baseball field, the more he's kind of realizing who he's the person he's always supposed to have been and the more he's then able to sort of forgive himself for the way he talked to his father and for what his father sins of his own father so i think it's you know we're we're seeing ray become more of a whole person whereas we see kane's descent over his whole life yeah kane was never ever a whole person and he, we just saw all the fragments i think isn't it whereas ray kinsella starts off as he starts off almost as a broken man yeah you know, he doesn't realize it um, and he thinks that to be broken means to be like his father which he's trying to avoid but in fact he is a broken man and um, throughout the course of the, f- of the film he slowly comes back together like a jigsaw 
And I'm really not uh, much of a fan of Kevin Costner, but I think in this movie, he's playing somebody who, like you said, is broken but doesn't realize it. He's so detached from his emotions that I think these sort of like blank two by four way of acting that Kevin Costner usually has like fits for this role. So I, I think he's actually kind of perfect for it. I have to admit, I'm a huge fan of Kevin Costner. And uh, one of the reasons why I went to see this film in the cinema when it was first out, shows my age, was because of Kevin Costner. Yeah, so I was going to ask, like this, you know, baseball is such an American game. So was it just Kevin Costner that attracted you to the movie in the first place? Yes, yes, Kevin Costner. Yes, it's because you know he was at the time he was one of these up and coming stars. Bull Durham had come out, and he'd come a couple of others. You know, Silverado. They all seemed to because he did, he had quite a lot of success in a very short time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just went out to see him each time because I thought that he's a very likable and very relatable actor. You know, I was one of the few people who was really excited about Dancers Wolves before it came out, you know. Everybody was calling it Kevin's Gate. They thought that it was going to be a huge flop. Uh, but I was really, really excited because oh, this is Kevin Costner. And, you know, and after a while, we realized that his range only goes so far. I'll admit that now. But at the time, he was a young and up-and-coming actor, and um, he was doing really, really well. So baseball is not a big thing over here. You know, yeah. There's only one channel I know of that shows it. I don't actually have that channel. And yet, baseball movies are such a huge part of Hollywood history that you can't avoid them. It's really interesting that this time of Hollywood, you had, right around the same time, you had Bull Durham, a major league, a Field of Dreams, A League of Their Own, uh, Eight Men Out, all coming out around in like this five-year or so period. And I was looking up like they were all coming from different studios. I think a couple of them were from Universal. It, it just strange that like at, at this time, uh, Hollywood was just like, yeah, give us more baseball movies. And a lot of them were really great. So I'm not complaining. I just think it's an interesting phenomenon. Why do you think that is the case then uh, around that time? You know, is it that was the end of the Reagan era, I believe, isn't it? Or perhaps the middle and towards the end of his second term yeah yeah so it was right um into the transfer from reagan to uh george hw bush and it was uh, you know a few years before the 94 strike um and so this is really at the crux of when probably football was really overtaking america as the sport so i think maybe there was just the right time for nostalgia or because you know one studio heard, saw that bull durham was a hit and said oh let's we need our baseball movies and nobody can have the courage to have an original idea in hollywood so no but it's a good thing sometimes though isn't it yeah yeah, you know, yeah in this case so it does baseball does it have the hold over people as suggested in the movies Yes, um, it certainly does for me. Um, I've seen, I've watched Ken Burns's base ten hour baseball documentary. Uh, I've seen it at least once, and all that stuff about nostalgia, all that stuff about the history of it, the mythology of it. I mean, like you know, if you look at a player from eighty years ago, they're basically in the same uniform, using the same equipment as they do now. Obviously, there's been improvements and and slight changes, but I mean, this is still a sport where people wear belts in their uniform. Like it's kind of silly, but it's. Part of why I, I love baseball is that it has such a, a tie to history and American history and sort of like American social movements and, and things. And you can really look at it through rose-colored glasses if you want, or you can kind of see how America has tried to sweep certain things under the rug and, you know, finally come to realize its own sins, but maybe a little too late. So I think... So it's like a, a mirror to America... Yes, yeah, more than any maybe. other sport. Yeah, especially because, you know, like 
basketball is such a superstar league. And so it, it, it's interesting in that you see these giant personalities fight against each other or like football is such a, a league based on spectacle and owners and TV commercials. And that's its own form of entertainment, but it's certainly not something that I, I think that I can connect to emotionally in a way that I connect to baseball. And I think if you look at, you know, viewership and such, I'm in the minority anymore, but I think there's still a lot of people who view baseball the same way. So is uh, baseball losing ground now, is it, in terms of spectation too? It's been fairly even or even on the rise in the last few years, but it's still been second or third to football and basketball the last couple of decades. Okay, because I have to admit, you mean I'm a big fan of uh, of the NFL. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it started in the mid-80s over here on television, uh, just highlights of the time, but I watched it and I, I love the spectacle. We don't have that over here so much, you know, so it was something new for me. But it's interesting what you say about, for example, the uniforms. Sometimes when you see the players take to the field today, it looks odd because these uniforms, they're not modern really, are they? they no. It, it all looks like a throwback, as if America's looking back. Every time they watch a game, if they're in pants that only come down to their knees and knee high socks, yeah, like yeah. It, it's. <laughs> but that's the same for NFL, though, isn't it? So they are. Yeah. Their shorts go down as far as the knees, and yeah, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't know, but I mean, like, it, but if if you look at the uniforms of somebody in football from the '60s, even, um, it would look totally different. But if you it looked does, yeah. at the uniforms of Joe DiMaggio and a modern Yankee uniform and like put them both in sepia tones, it wouldn't look that much different. And I suppose because baseball, I get the uh, impression that it's very much a statistics based sport. Yes. And those statistics don't really change through the years because there's still people who from 80 years ago who still might own records which haven't been beaten today. Yeah, like getting 60 home runs is still an extraordinary accomplishment. Um, hitting career 300 is still almost a guarantee in the Hall of Fame. Like 3,000 hits is still a benchmark that Hall of Fame voters look at. Um, 500 home runs. Uh, yeah, that's it's been the same way for about a century until you know like quote-unquote modern baseball started in 1900 <laughs> like it's it's a ridiculously long history and I, that's you know part of what fascinates me and that's part of why the movie field of dreams is possible because it's like it's in the earth in america well before we go back to field of dreams i just want to ask you one question because you, we sure. hear a lot of statistics over here um i remember ron howard's uh, mentioning something on British TV a couple of years ago about batting a thousand. Most people have clue what this means. So when you say, did you say hitting three hundred? What does mm-hmm. that mean exactly? Uh, that means you got a hit thirty percent of the time you were at bat. So okay. if you're batting a thousand, you're perfect. Okay, okay. And so, yeah, especially anymore, like uh, batting averages are dropping now. So three hundred is getting rarer and rarer. Okay, because thirty percent doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah, that's that's part of what makes baseball <laughs> such an interesting sport. That failure seventy percent of the time means you're one of the best players or best hitters, at least uh, in the league. Again, that seems like an American, doesn't it? Because uh, yeah. uh, the old American ideal is about success, success, success. Yeah, and you're talking about a lot of failure, and then oh, he hit it. <laughs> Failure, failure, failure. Yeah. Like when they talk about Shoeless Joe Jackson and the way he performed in the World Series, he had a 375 batting average for the series, and that's extraordinarily good. 
yeah. uh, to do to do that in the playoffs, especially now. That is almost proof that he was not trying to lose. Whereas, you know, like a lot of really great players, like, um, for example, Alex Rodriguez, have done extraordinarily terrible in the playoffs and sometimes batted less than 200 for a series. Okay. But I, that's another reason why I think um, baseball is interesting because there's a lot of ways to learn from an at-bat. Like you could sacrifice fly, you could walk, you could get hit by a pitch, or you could learn what a pitcher's doing, and then the next at-bat you could hit a home run. So it's a much more psychological game, even though it's a physical sport. I can see why those who love the game really go into it then because it's something that there's small tiny nuances that only a only somebody who loves the game can actually see is that right yeah i mean you know so if you play in wrigley field you can hit a ball 390 feet and have it not be a home run but if you play in fenway park that same hit will be a home run so it 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 really, you know, it changes these kind of small or, you know, or you hit it 10 feet to the right, it's a home run. Or if you hit it 10 feet to the left, it's a foul ball. Like it, it's such a game of minutia that I think is fascinating. Well, one of the surprising things really um, for Field of Dreams is that it actually does go quite a lot into these statistics in the conversations, but it doesn't spoil the entertainment for people like ourselves over here who don't understand that minutia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be- there's very little baseball in the movie. Like there's no game. You you see like practice between you know, the ghost players, but there's, you know, nobody's trying to win the World Series in Field of Dreams. It's just sort of like about the way baseball makes you feel. Yes, for the love of the game, to quote another Kevin Costner movie. You know, from our point of view, you know, because we hear a lot of this uh, stats and it seems like a lot because Mm -hmm. it's a new language for us, but it it doesn't change because ultimately the story itself is universal. Yeah, I think for me... I really love movies about good dads or dads trying to be good dads. And this is sort of the king of them because, you know, Kevin Costner is so trying to not be his father and trying to be a good father and trying to find redemption. And, you know, for me, so much of my connection to baseball is because of my father and his love for baseball. And so, you know, this movie sort of hits me uh, on all levels. And, you know, Kevin Costner even finds a new father figure in uh, James Earl Jones' character, Terrence Mann, who, of course, played Darth Vader. And so hearing that voice come at me talking about baseball as a six-year-old. Yes, yes. Um, it really sort of resonated in my soul. Well, I remember when uh, they first started broadcasting CNN over here and you just heard his voice again. This is CNN. That was fine tingling. (laughs) <laughs> the one thing I think, one flaw with um, Field of Dreams, however, is that when it comes to fatherhood, uh, Ray fell out with his father when Ray was a teenager, and mm-hmm. Ray has not experienced a teenager yet as a father. Yeah. <laughs> and believe me, it gets harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, but, has an, he has one adorable, like, seven-year-old daughter. Yes. Um, They're all adorable at that age. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> But in five to ten years, you're going to have a monster. We just all are. <laughs> when we turn 16, 17, we become monsters, or even earlier, maybe. It's earlier, believe me. Uh, <laughs> my, I love my daughter, but yes, she's a teenager. It remind, The film reminds me some in some ways, uh, because it's almost the inverse of Close Encounters, the third kind. Because on the one hand, there's the similarities in, in Roy Neary. Is, um, he gets this vision. He doesn't quite understand it but he follows it no matter what. Mm -hmm. In Field of Dreams, his family are with him 
uh, with Ray throughout. They don't really question it. His wife Annie, she she you know discusses the problems with it, but she doesn't really question him. She you know encourages him all along. And yet, in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, his wife leaves him. She's not in the second half, or you could say he leaves her, but she's not in the second half of the film at all. Yeah, whereas you know, Amy Madigan's Annie is totally on board with Ray's mission. Like She sees a passion in him, and she says, like, if this is something you really have to do, then go ahead and do it. I, I love their marriage in this movie. Like, I know it kind of doesn't make sense that your wife would just be like, yeah, sure, bankrupt us so you can have a baseball field. But I sort of believe it with these two characters. Like, they're such idealists. And you, you get a great um, glimpse of that at the PTA meeting. Yes, and, yes. Um, when Amy Madigan basically, like, stands up against um, fascist censorship and gets an auditorium full of rural Iowans to cheer for a 1960s polemic against political oppression. Uh, so she she is a little bit of a magical character in, her, in herself. She's uh, fantastic, isn't she? She's uh, yeah. Does this? Well, I suppose it's different now because this film was released in 1989. But the, the 60s seem to hold a very strong grip on the United States. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I've thought about this, you know, for a long time. Like, there's still 14-year-olds discovering, like, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin for the first time, you know, and that, uh, that's that been the case for the last five decades somehow, uh, whereas, you know, no, nobody in 1968 was listening to music from 1918, certainly. No, um, no. Yeah, and so, you know, there's there's also, you know, people are still watching uh, 2001, um, people are still watching a few years later but you know the, the godfather which is in this movie so I, th- I think a lot of the pop culture um from that era is still around i think a lot of the american idealism uh that we kind of like to think about ourselves like peace and love and justice is comes from that era um, but then you saw so much division come out of the the destruction uh of the civil rights movement with with the, you know the assassination of uh, malcolm x martin luther king and and uh bobby kennedy the the destruction of the the love generation so there's this sort of dichotomy of optimism and you know destruction of that optimism happening at the same time and so sort of solidify and then of course the moon landing and so it's kind of solidified itself as like everything right and wrong with america was happening in in that era Massive peaks and massive troughs, then I suppose. Is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then of course you had um, the Nixon years, which started at the end of the sixties, and yeah. uh, and that seems to be something that Hollywood is fascinated with. Because recently, myself, I've seen Frost Nixon and the Oliver Stone film Nixon, and it's you know, uh, oh, and I saw um, the Post, which is a perfect triple bill, and you know, Nixon is this such a strong character, more than perhaps any other president apart from Kennedy. He, yeah, he really is an icon in his – it's so easy to hate him. I think, you know, since Trump has become president, uh, we, we've reached new levels of villainy in our politicians. But, but I think it's interesting how sort of competent Nixon was just as a politician, but he was so self-serving uh, and so unconcerned with other human beings that he just became this uh, pariah of a lot of people, especially the left. But he's, he's so easy to parody, so easy to make fun of and – so easy to make sort of extravagant satires of like in the show Futurama, Nixon is a head in a jar in a giant robot, but it's still somehow immediately recognizable as Nixon. So if you have that and Anthony Hopkins as the same person, yeah, he's a rather kind of etched in stone cultural figure. He is, yes. Uh, I was thinking with with Trump, the uh, Trump is in his early 70s now, which means his teenage years would have been around those uh, idealist 60s. 
Yeah, but um, growing up with a hundreds of millions of dollars in your trust fund can change your outlook on yeah. life. Well, as Annie says to that woman in the PTA meeting, you know, I think you had was it two fifties and skipped right onto the seventies. <laughs> yes, that's a great line. <laughs> that's a great line, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so he builds the the field, and then Shoeless Joe Jackson appears in the form of Ray Liotta, which I think has mm-hmm. inspired casting because. Ray Liotta is not, or was not known as a you know a likable character. He'd, he'd already done um, the Jonathan Demme film with yeah something wild yeah something wild. You know he, he's not a nice character, and he's got that behind. There's something dangerous about him. Yes, and to, for him to play this iconic um, and you know one of the heroes of this film, I think that was inspired casting. He's he's somebody actually um, the guy who play the actor who plays John Kinsella at the end, uh, Dwyer Brown, uh, wrote a book about this movie and the effect it had, and he talked about a meeting. It's, it's called uh, If You Build It. It's it's great if if anybody's interested, but. Well, I'll have, to, I'll have to look up for that. I, I hope to talk about more more about that later. But yes, in the yeah. book, he 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 does talk about um how there is this sort of indefinable presence and danger about Ray Liotta. Like he he first met him in a bar, and your he his eye just immediately went to Ray Liotta. And there's just something about his eyes that makes you think he's unstable. And so yeah, even when he's not yelling at you, when uh, Ray like bobbles that grounder to him, and and he's like, oh sorry, like you can feel that. Like oh my god is is this guy gonna like he's judging have an outburst me. yeah yeah you can, you can feel his eyes judging you and so yeah really it is perfect yeah yes uh, when he um, he says um, can you uh, see if you can hit my curve <laughs> yeah and it, it, there's such disdain of course I can who who do you yeah. think you are yeah. do we need a catcher uh, not if you put <laughs> it over the plate <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. But uh, yeah, so do you know? Were there any of the other the other uh, ghosts? For better, they are ghosts, I suppose, aren't they? We don't think of them as ghosts because mm-hmm. you know in that scene where Karen says, "You know, are you a ghost? You look real to me." Yeah, and then I guess I'm real. Yeah. I guess I'm real. Yeah, were they just actors, or were they uh, you know um, ex players or anything like that? You know? Yeah, yeah, they're all character actors. All character actors. Yeah, the uh, baseball advisor was um, the University of Southern California. Uh, shout out to Becky uh, Deanna, Southern California baseball coach Rod Diadu. Um, he was the consultant on the film um, when he was seventy-four years old at the time. Uh, he coached at USC for forty-five years. He won twenty-eight conference championships and eleven national titles. Uh, and he was named Coach of the Century by Collegiate Baseball. And this is actually from that book. But uh, one day, um, the director and Rod. They do. Uh, we're talking. They asked him if he ever played in the majors, and he said, "Yeah, I played shortstop. Were you good?" He said, "I could field the ball. Could you hit? I could hit. Well, how come you didn't make it? I played in 1935. I was a starting shortstop for the Brooklyn Dodgers. I played one game, broke my back, and that was the end of my career." Oh no! And then the director's face went white and says, "Oh my God, you're Doc Graham. That's right." Oh yeah. <laughs> do you ever do you ever think about it? Gee, the career I might have had. Every day, he said. So there's all these like remarkable coincidences around this movie that I find really kind of heartwarming. And so the fact that as so as legendary as a college baseball figure as Rod Dedu was, he still thought about what might have been if he yeah. could have could have played professionally. Well, as uh, Bert Lancaster says, is there enough magic in the moonlight to make these things happen? Oh God! <laughs> you know what a fantastic line. Yeah, and what perfect casting is Burt Lancaster in that role? Like, there's so much like potential for like saccharine sweetness in those lines, 
but delivered by Burke Lancaster. It's absolutely beautiful. Yes, because he's got the history of Hollywood behind him as well, isn't he? You know? Yeah. The the casting of the, the whole film is spot on because let's go back a little bit. James Earl Jones, we've mentioned his voice, but uh, one of the reasons why he was um, cast, um, because originally in the book, uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson by W. Uh, Kinsella, they, he actually uses uh, J.D. Salinger and he actually yeah. name checks him. But of course, Salinger apparently said that um, if they used him, he was going to sue them. He was, sounds like a grump, just like uh, Terence Mann is in the film. So it was, you know, challenging everything apart from name. But one of the reasons why um, the director, uh, Robinson, liked this idea of having James Earl Jones was the idea of Kevin Costner kidnapping such a huge fella. <laughs> I think that's perfect. Yeah, because when Ray goes to get Terence Mann, they do have a physical confrontation, and he basically cowers in front of him and says, what are you doing? I'm going to beat you to death with this crowbar. Um, and then he says, you're a pacifist. Oh, shit. shit. <laughs> so, yeah, I love it. So just for the fact that Terrence Mann is still so dedicated to being a pacifist, he's like, all right, I'll Even when he forgets, right with, with this lunatic. <laughs> and the way that um, Ray actually does kidnap him by sticking his finger in his jacket. I said, you know, this is a gun. It's your finger. It's your... Show me. I'm not going to show you my gun. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of humor in this film, which um, people yeah. often forget because of, you know, because of the message, because of the dreams, because of the magic and everything. They forget the very, well, it's got very, very good humor. And part of that is that, like, James Earl Jones loves to giggle on screen. He has this wonderful laugh that's really infectious and incredibly genuine. And I think that just it just makes you feel like everything's going to be okay. So even yes. though he's being kidnapped, he, he gets some delight out of the ridiculousness of the situation. Well, whenever I see him in interviews, he's all, he seems to be that kind of character, doesn't he? He loves mm-hmm. to laugh. He loves to giggle, as you say, all the time. And when he's got a giggle like that, it's so infectious. Yeah, and you, you do see that a lot in um, Bingo Long, which we'll get to later. Yes, 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 we get to that. So then they go back in time, and one of the great things about this film is that it doesn't explain anything at all. Nope. It just tells you, accept it. So when yeah. Ray goes out for a walk, he ends up in 1972. Yeah, and and somehow the walk um, that Doc Graham was taking in 1972 kind of crosses times and stars and dimensions, and they can meet on the street, uh, you know, in, in front of a cinema. Yes, which is showing The Godfather. Yeah, there's so many like bad uh, magical realist movies and books. Like it's a really incredibly difficult balance of like trying to imbue your work with magic and fantasy, but still have it grounded in the real world. In the real world, because like if you're making Lord of the Rings, like okay, sure, there's orcs and and magic, and so why not time travel? Yeah. But if you're like an Iowa farmer looking for a baseball player or a writer, and you suddenly st- step back in 1972, there's a risk of you losing the audience, but somehow feel the dreams because it keeps going forward. It, it doesn't hold your hand and explain everything. And when you go back in time, you meet such a magical character like Doc Graham, played by Burt Lancaster, it's able to make you accept everything that's going on. And he doesn't apologize for it, yeah. which I think is important. And going back to Kevin Costner, I think one of the reasons it works is because he is such an everyman. It's, it's very, very easy to accept because if he can accept it, then so can we. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. So towards the end of the film then, of course, we find, you know, uh, well, the, the specter in the background of the whole film 
is finances. Just a little bit earlier, I my boy was uh, seen a few clips. He's only nine years old, and he said uh, he asked if he could do a review while we test him the mic, and he said uh, Field of Dreams. It's a film about finances, baseball, and magic. I don't know where the finances came from, but he he actually got a point because the threat of bankruptcy and the realization, the the reality of the situation is in the background all the time. Yeah, he's putting himself in such financial danger, not only, you know, plowing under his crops, he he goes off on this sort of like vision quest to get a rider who's nobody's seen in years and a baseball player who's dead. Um, none of it makes any sense. Um, but I think he's able to do that. He's able to separate himself from his farm because he, he's not a farmer. So he kind of like, oh, if I'm not a farmer anymore after this because of bankruptcy, it's not going to change me as a person. And, and the fact that his wife supports him, I think, is really wonderful. Uh, but yeah, he, he's, he's putting more faith in his dreams than, than in money, uh, which is sort of the, the reason why probably Shoeless Joe Jackson played baseball in the first place. Yes, you get the impression, even from some of the other films where Shoeless Joe Jackson turned up in, he wasn't really interested in the money. He didn't understand the money. He just wanted the baseball. Yeah. But on the other hand, of course, you've got um, Timothy Busfield as Mark, who I think is uh, Annie's brother. And he represents the bank. You know, he represents the money people. And because he is so closed off to the magic, he can't actually see any of it. And it's not like he, he's coming at it from an illogical position. Like if your brother-in-law was saying, can't you see these men on the baseball field? We're watching the game and you didn't see anything. You might be concerned for the welfare of your sister, both like physically and financially. <laughs> exactly. So like, yeah. And Timothy Busfield, I think like he really has a difficult job in this movie because like in the climax of the film when James Earl Jones has given that beautiful speech about what baseball means he has to interject and interrupt James Earl Jones's beautiful words and be like Ray you're gonna lose the farm Ray (laughs) so he's putting himself in the position of the guy to be hated and he just yes. does it w- wonderfully. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing. There's, there's a scene when, uh, in that scene, when he actually walks up, he gets out of the car and they play in and he walks right past the catcher and the, the hitter and somebody throws the ball right in front of him. Yeah. He doesn't flinch. I thought that's up there with uh, Toshiro Mufune in um, was it Throne of Blood with the arrows. You know, I, 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 how many times do they have to do that? You know, he probably had, Bruises all down the side from the number of times in it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but he still ends up, he's, he's not an unlikable character either, which is, you know, he is the bad guy. He represents everything that is wrong with, you know, society, that everything that Field of Dreams is trying to discuss. And yet I, I never once thought of him as an unlikable person. Yeah, he's definitely not a bad guy. And that, that that's sort of what is remarkable about this movie is that there are no antagonists. No. It's just like the vague concept of financial insolvency is the antagonist but everybody else is really likable like you are rooting for everyone like so even when Terrence Mann is about to beat Kevin Costner to death with a crowbar you're rooting for him because it's James Earl Jones and he had this, such his, this build up of this like genius writer who has been in hiding for years that's that's very true that's very true at the end of the film then what do you think of the final because throughout the film, it's one giant MacGuffin, isn't it? At the end of the film, we find out that it's not about Shoeless Joe. It's 
he was about Ray all along. Yeah. Well, I, I just there's a review and uh, Peter Travers of the Rolling Stone. Who, who I, I have to, I do like Peter Travers. I I, I watch his program sometimes on YouTube, um, Popcorn. And he said of the end, and he said, uh, to be honest, I started hearing things too. Just when Jones was delivering an inexcusably sappy speech about baseball being a symbol of all that once was good with America, I heard the voice saying, if he keeps talking, I'm walking. What do you think of that? Because that's pretty damning. Yeah, uh, well, I disagree. James Earl Jones can talk to me about baseball for 16 hours, um, but... That's a speech I I love that speech and that is one of the reasons why I love baseball because I think if you look at you know the highest highs that baseball has given us you know it is a symbol of what we could be all the time of course you know recently we had the Houston Astros it was revealed that they stole signs and cheated on the way to winning the World Series in 2017 and so that's the lowest of the low. Uh, in baseball, but alongside um, the Black Sox scandal, which is mentioned, yeah, in, uh... yeah. So the fact that this movie is about the players of the Black Sox, so, so James Jones is standing in front of the players who were involved in baseball's most uh, shameful scandal in its history, and he's able to say those beautiful words about baseball is why I love baseball because, like, we can look at these men who gambled and cheated, but were still treated unfairly. But we can still look at the dream that baseball gives us a glimpse into and be optimistic about the future. And and that's what James Earl Jones is communicating to us. And I think that only an actor of James Earl Jones's caliber can communicate that. Well, uh, we'll we'll discuss the the scandal itself in a couple of minutes when we discuss some of the other films. But uh, mm-hmm. so the very final moment, then it's all about Ray. Yeah, I you know, I had a theory many years ago that uh, remember the film Beaches with Bette Midler, and um, it was a huge. It was it was seen as a chick flick. And I, mm-hmm. I've always thought Field of Dreams is a weepy for men. I do apologize, but it's just something that just seems so right. Uh, and I have to admit, from the moment that Karen says, uh, you know, people will come, Dad, I start blubbering like a baby. It is a heart when when they meet uh, Ray and, and John Kinsella, when they meet, it really is like heart wrenching. In, in uh, Dwyer Brown's book, um, he, he talks about his his own father died during production of this movie. And so on his father's deathbed, there's this sort of real tragic scene of him telling his father he loves him. And it was not a thing that those two men had said to each other uh, most of their lives. And, and then Ray and John Kinsella are two men who probably never even said I love you once in their entire lives. And here uh, Ray and John are given this sort of magical opportunity to communicate their love for one another. And they do that via playing catch. That is a very sort of male centric activity. And um, my mom who does like this movie rolls her eyes at that moment because she says, why can't they actually say I love you? Um, And I think that's, that is a fair point, but I think because in this film, raise the crux of what he has done to his father it sort of revolves around baseball and his own sort of fall rejection of baseball but i i do think it is a a beautiful moment when they actually you know have a catch finally well he does say early on in the film that um the way that he rejected his father was by refusing to play catch yeah so by playing catch that is in his way saying you know i'm sorry forgive me and i love you yeah, and I think for for the movie, it, it definitely works be, because 
you know, the age of John Kinsella, the ghost version of him is younger than he would have been when Ray was actually born. Yes. So it's sort of like not even the, the John Kinsella that Ray knew. It's this sort of like amalgamated imaginary version of him. Yes. In fact, um, Ray actually says uh, that by the time he got to know his father, he was already worn down by life. Yeah. Whereas when he meets him at the end, he has still got his life, so to speak, because, you know, obviously he's, he's dead and he's ghost, but he does seem to have his life in front of him. And he mm-hmm. does seem to still have the hopes and dreams of youth. But at the same time, he somehow knows that he is dad because he answers to dad when Ray finally says that to him. Like, dad, want to have a catch? Well, yeah, I suppose maybe the ghosts appear as their ideal selves, maybe, because, yeah. you know, um, Shoeless Joe died much, much later. You know, uh, they mentioned the fact that he had put on quite a few more pounds and he's lost the spring this step. But of course, in the film, he isn't. He's much younger. And, I, and originally, they wanted to cast somebody older than Ray Liotta. Yeah, so the, the ghosts are very much the idealized versions of themselves. So... For John Kinsella, he may be he may be a ghost. He may have lived all his life. He probably remembers all his life. But this is the way that he wants to be remembered, and the, the way that he, you know, we throughout life we all remember our ideal moments in our lives, and maybe that was it when he was, you know, when he was playing. Yeah, and I, I just love that, um, you know, there's the, the whole intuitive nature of the ghosts and and the cornfield and what heaven is, if it defies explanation, I think that's kind of the, the point. We're not given um, concrete explanations because there are none. This is a magical happening, and it's a magical opportunity for a father and a son to reconnect, and I think it's beautiful. So uh, Dwyer Brown, that's his name, is it? Yes. Was he? Did he play the catcher through the whole film, or was he just for the it final was, moment? It, it was just in the final moments, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Because obviously, you know, there was a, a number of scenes... There was a number of scenes in which they play in, but then the, the only game they start playing is when he returns off his trip to pick up Terence Mann, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Just, we talked about earlier, about you said some of the coincidences that happened in the film. And one thing that uh, I heard Phil Alden Robinson mention was the fact that the film, when, it was, when they were in production, the production title was Shoeless Joe. And the studio didn't like that title because they thought Shoeless Joe sounds like a hobo or people would know who he was. And other people would assume that Kevin Costner's playing Shoeless Joe, which of course he wasn't. So they came up with the title Field of Dreams, which Robinson didn't like originally. So he phones up Kinsella, the writer, and he says, I got good news and bad news. The good news is that people seem to like the film. And apparently they, when they changed the title to Field of Dreams, the, uh, the scores actually went up in the previews. And he said, but we've got to change the title. We can't use Shoeless Joe. And the writer said, well, that's okay, because that title was given to me by my publisher. So Alden Robinson said, uh, so what was the title that you were you know, going to use originally? And he said, I was going to call it Dreamfield, which is <laughs> a real coincidence. Yeah. yeah. You know? So the, the title was there all along. It's just they, they just couldn't see it. Yeah, and, and there's also things like there actually was a Doc Graham person that the Doc Graham character was based on. And so like all those interviews that Terrence Mann is doing is with people who actually knew the Doc Graham inspiration character. And so they yeah, were real people, these, are they? Yeah, yeah, they're oh, real wow. people. They're not not non actors. Oh wow. Yeah. So there's the interweaving of reality and fantasy uh, in this movie, especially because, you know, the the author of the book named the main character after himself um, is sort of fascinating to me. 
Yes, he's admitted himself that um, he just wanted to see what it would be like if Shoeless Joe Jackson returned to Iowa. And that was the basis of his, you know, writing the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had to insert himself, I suppose. You know, well, any writer inserts themselves to a certain extent, but he did it with his surname and everything. To um, sum up then, Field of Dreams. I get the feeling that you, you do really actually like this film. Yeah, very much. Like, it's... It's something that has been with, it was one of those VHSs that I had as a, as a kid, like when I was six years old, that I just really connected with, you know, for almost as long as things like Star Wars and Star Trek. And if you know me, I'll talk about those things for forever. And so, yeah, this is a movie that has been with me all my life and I'm, I really do treasure it. I'm exactly the same. I saw it when I was about, it was 1989, so um, probably about 17 or 18 and, uh, mm. I saw it in the cinema. It just made an immediate impact on me. Showing the how t- um, things have changed. Back in the day, it was released in April 1989, and it was still in the cinema right up to Christmas. They they actually ended its run just before Christmas. Wow. So that's eight months in the cinema. Times have changed, you know. Now everything has been made in the first two three weeks, and that's it. But those were the days, weren't they? Yeah, this is definitely the sort of like mid-range movie that would not get made now. No, no, it'd probably end up on maybe Netflix, maybe. Out of 10, what would you give it? Uh, I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. I don't care. No. I love this movie. I, I'm exactly the same. I would give it a 10 out of 10 myself. It's a film that I often, you know, my wife always says that I've got about 25 films in my top 10, and that's one of them. <laughs> yes, definitely, yeah. Um, it's It's my favorite sports movie. It's something that turns me from a, a cynical, pessimistic jerk into a, a gooey, like sentimental mess. So yeah, I'm all for Field of Dreams. Yeah, I, I've for some reason I've got you know those kind of films really, really move me. My you know the film I say is my favorite film of all time is is Cinema Paradiso. Mm-hmm. And again, I turn into a blubbering mess. It seems something about those types of films which I seem attracted to. That's what's magical about film. It can really like affect us emotionally. That it's it's just you know images on a screen and sound, but like there's works of beauty that really affect us and improve our lives. That's why we're here talking about it. This, exactly, exactly. Say, hey, Evelyn, can I ask you a question? You got a moment? Mm-hmm. Which team do you play for? Well, I, I'm a peach. Well, I was just wondering, because I couldn't figure out why you would throw home when we've got a two-run lead. You let the tying run get on second, and we lost the lead because of you. Now you start using your head. That's not love that's three feet above your ass. <laughs> Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Why don't you leave her alone, Jimmy? Oh, you zip it, Doris. Rogers Hornsby was my manager, and he called me a talking pile of pig shit. And that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play the game. And did I cry? No, no. No, no. And you know why? No. Because there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. No crying. Jimmy? What? She's crying, sir. I didn't mean to do that. Perhaps you chastise her too vehemently. Good rule of thumb. Treat each of these girls as you would treat your mother. Anyone ever tell you you look like a penis with a little hat on? Oh, my goodness. 
You're out of here! Oh, no, right no, no, now, no, Jimmy, you, I heard you that! Misunderstood you misunderstood me! You misunderstood me! No, I didn't! You can't throw me out for that! No, you me. got a strike! Right the no, 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 So, second part of our doubleheader tonight. We have seen a number of baseball movies between ourselves uh, in the last week or two. So, what other films have you been watching? Yeah, so Eight Men Out, I watched uh, The Natural and Bull Durham and A League of Their Own, uh, and also a movie that I had to do some research to see, uh, Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. Um, Which also stars James Earl Jones. Jones. Yeah, and the great Billy Dee Williams. Well, let's start with that one. What did you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like this movie. Um, it's one of the only movies ever been made about the Negro Leagues, which I think is a shame because I think there's a potential for so many great stories out there. You know, for, for decades, um, there's this entire universe of baseball that white America was just not privy to. There's this great uh, newsreel montage that opens this movie where it talks about the great Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, even though Satchel Paige, I think, is known to most baseball fans, I think. Josh Gibson is a little more obscure, which is sad because he might have been the greatest hitter of his era, but because he played in the Negro Leagues, he's not well known. And so Bing Along is about uh, Billy D. Williams, who plays the titular character, and he decides to seize the means of production, as James Jones says, and create his own team of traveling all-stars to wrench control from the owners and barnstorm across America and make money their own way. And they are uh, forced out of the league in many respects by the owners. Yeah. And so they have to find their own ways of making money and that includes uh cake walking into town yeah yeah there is this really interesting dichotomy of the all-stars having to sort of play up the like minstrelsy of the negro leagues to get white audiences because they've been blackballed from the negro league uh games they have to court a white audience and the white audience kind of doesn't want to see them they want to see what white people think Negro League players are like, and so they kind of have to do silly stunts and and that kind of thing to to pack stadiums. And so there is a little consternation about that, especially with Gabriel Jones's character. Um, but they're such skilled players and such great entertainers that they succeed. Yeah, that's one thing that surprised me about the film because I didn't know much about the the fact that there was this Negro League. So I thought, okay, they, they obviously play in because you know they wouldn't be allow a uh, mixed race league. That's fine, I understand that. But then they started playing white teams, and I found that really, really surprising. Yeah, that happened uh, a lot in barnstorming. So if anybody doesn't know, barnstorming was a way for players to make money in the off season or make extra money during the season where they would go and play extra games or, or, or out of the country. There was a lot of barnstorming in, in Latin America and Canada. But what would happen is a lot of these games were not well regulated. And so you could do lots of goofy stunts. Like you see the team dressed as sort of cartoonish versions of like Orthodox Jews. That was, a, <laughs> that was a common gimmick in, in the twenties and thirties. Uh, there's actually a great graphic novel called the golems mighty swing uh, about a team that had a golem character that basically functioned as like a Casey at the bat kind of mythological figure that would come in at like the bottom of the night, then hit a home run and then they would, they would win. So yeah, it's was sort of a mix between sport and circus. 
uh, a lot of these barnstorming leagues were. So, I mean, you see in one of the games, like it's so poorly equipped that um, the umpire has to stand behind the pitcher because they can't afford pads for the umpire. So if he gets hit by like a, a wild pitch, he would, you know, die. Uh, so they don't want that. So yeah, the, the barnstorming leagues were quite a show. So they were like the Glo- Ga- um, Harlem Globetrotters of baseball. Yes, 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 yes. Somewhere between the minor leagues and the Harlem Globetrotters, yeah. Okay, this is, like I say, this history is completely new to me. And uh, barnstorming to me is a word that people just use to show something that is, um, I don't know, very extravagant. I, I, you know, I can see where that, that word is coming from now, the entomology of that word. You might play next to a literal barn or a, a thing. <laughs> Yeah, the athlete at one point the center fielder runs through a barn to catch a fly ball. Oh, he does. Yes, that's right. That's um, Stan Shaw. Stan yeah. Shaw, fantastic. He he looked a bit out of place really because he's such a big um, fella that um, to play somebody who was so fast, he looked a bit odd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so you really enjoyed this one, then, did you? Yeah, I really did. Um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, James Earl Jones is is the light. He's yelling at his teammates to you know read books, and he's able to quote from W. E. B. Du Bois. Richard Pryor does some weird stuff, pretending. Actually, it's Richard Pryor's character plays a guy who's pretending to be Cuban or Native American throughout the whole movie, and it points out the ridiculousness of the racism of the era because all of a sudden, if you're from Cuba, you can play, but you can but, be a black but if you're, Cuban. But, yeah, but, but, but yeah, you, can be, you can be a black Cuban, you can play, but if, yeah, if you're a black American, you can't play. Um, so yeah, it, it even in a very fun comedy romp, it's able to point out the sort of inherent hypocrisy of, of racism, especially at the time. So it, yeah, it's a really great balancing act, I thought. I thought Richard Pryor was excellent. I had, I have to admit, I had a few issues with the film because I thought that it was almost as if he was trying too much and the music was getting on my nerves. Because, oh, okay. you know, they, they, it was almost as if the, the script wasn't the, strong, uh, the strongest script, but the performances, especially Billy D. Williams and James Earl Jones and the others as well around them, Richard Pryor, made up for that because they were so enthusiastic and so energetic. But I think that the director, John Badham, didn't quite have the confidence in it. And so he tried to ramp things up, which I don't think he needed it. However, like I say, I could watch those three. And we talk about statistics and to see Richard Pryor throughout most of the film on the running gags was him trying to work out how to work out the statistics so that he would get a better batting average. Yeah, um, you could really talk circles around somebody who who doesn't know how to do statistics and that's made clear by, by those sequences. This film was really interesting as part of like film history because John Batham, he would go on to do Saturday Night Fever, uh, War Games Short Circuit, uh, the, the Frank Langella Dracula, but it was written by uh, Matthew Robbins who wrote Jaws, Close Encounters, THX 1138, and Sugarland Express. The cinematography was Bill Butler, who did Jaws, yes. One Flew the Cookies yeah. Next, Grease and Deliverance. So, and the people who were working on this movie were some of the like the most important like cultural like shapers of the time. But somehow, like, well, this movie is good. It's certainly no Jaws or Close Encounters. Uh, so it's just interesting that this crew of people were working on this thing. And you know, like Barry Gordy wrote one of the songs that they really do milk uh, that, that song, which pr- probably why, because he's, his name is on it. Um, but yeah, Barry Gordon was one of the producers. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting kind of 
cultural phenomenon that could only have happened in the mid seventies when like black exploitation movies were now able to be like family friendly. Yes. Yes. I, I can see that. Um, I have to admit, I, I hadn't actually heard of the film until you mentioned it. Luckily I managed to, to find a copy and to watch it. So I, I'm really glad I did because Billy D. Williams is one of those actors. I think that he never made the huge impact that he could have because he's such a likable actor. Mm-hmm. And he sometimes, the only thing people think of him is Lando Calrissian and that's it. And yeah, it's nice yeah, to and, see something else. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we all know that James Earl Jones is a, is a legend, but, you know, people think of him as Darth Vader and that's it. But he's also this like legend of the American stage. And so it's always great to see him in other roles and see his range as a performer. The film that I always associate with him, apart from obviously Star Wars and things like that, is in John Sayles' film, Mate One, where he plays few clothes. That That is one which, I, for me, that's John Sayles' best film. Mm-hmm. So, well, talk about John Sayles. Should we uh, yeah. move on to Eight Men Out? Sure, yeah. Because this one actually addresses the Black Sox scandal, as he was known, which is referenced in Field of Dreams, and it references it directly. This is what it's about, isn't it? Yeah. So we get to see the stories of of the the Black Sox sort of from their perspective. Um, And I think it's a really interesting choice for John Shell to to direct um, because he did write the screenplay, but he's directed so many movies about, you know, the downtrodden fighting against government or corporate interests. And so it's just interesting that this movie is his is something he's he's so intricately involved in and it's about professional baseball i think it's fascinating but i i would just really love to have an in-depth conversation with with him about it but what do you think well first before we go on today can you tell us what it was the scandal what was this all about yeah, so it even if you've seen the movie, it's complicated, but there was so much gambling going on in, in professional sports at the time, but gamblers were trying to influence the outcome of the World Series. And so they went to the White Sox, who were uh, heavily favored to win, and they wanted certain members to, th- uh, certain players to throw the games. And it ended up, uh, eight players were eventually banned from baseball, but there's a lot of controversy over who actually tried to throw a game, who paid for the, uh, who paid the players, who actually placed the bets, um, how it came out, um, if the players actually tried to throw the game, if they, did they just take the money? Were they just going along to get along? Was the, how was the owner involved? So yeah, it's, it's a very complicated, messy story. Yeah. And I, I think that the reason why John Sales was so interesting is because of this the fact that the players are seen to be they are the victims even though they are also the perpetrators of this this fraud the reason why they do it is because they are the victims and you know one of the players one of i think he was one of the most respected players on the team played by david strathern it was um was told that he was going to get a huge bonus if he played 30 games that season or if he won 30 games and in the He'd done 29, and then he was taken out. The the owner told the manager he can't play anymore, even though he and he would have won the 30th game and would have got this huge bonus, but they didn't want to give it to him, so they took him out. Yeah, it's um, and you know, listening to that now, it's insane because a pitcher winning 20 games anymore in a season is a rarity. So he was on his way to a possibly like Hall of Fame uh, career, but at this point, he was you know on the outs, probably not as physically fit as he could have been because this is the second half of his career. And, you know, uh, David Strathern's character uh, was sort of the key 
to the fix because if you don't have the starting pitcher in on it, uh, it's going to be hard to throw a, ba- a team sport like baseball. Um, but it, but because he was so bitter at the owner, uh, Kamiski, it wasn't that hard to convince him. So when you say win 20 games, what does that mean from a pitcher's point of view? Um, a pitcher wins a game if they pitch the majority of it and the winning run occurs while they are pitching. Okay. So so if, if I pitch seven innings and my team scores three runs and the other team scores two runs while I'm pitching and after I leave, nobody scores anything, I get a win. Uh, that's why now um, ERA is much more preferred as a, as a way of keeping track of a pitcher's performance. So ERA is earned run average. That means when I am pitching how many runners I put on base ended up scoring. So the lower Whether the I walk them or they got a hit. So even if I pitch like an almost perfect game and the other team scores only one run, if my team doesn't hit anything, I still get a loss as a pitcher. Uh, so that's that's unfair to base a bonus on. Uh, and Comiskey knew that. Well, one of the reasons, like I say, going back to John Sales is – you know, each one of these players, they, the players weren't rich. They weren't getting masses of, uh, you know, uh, bonuses. They weren't getting any endorsements and such. And a lot of them had mouths to feed, and yeah. they were being robbed by you know the, the richer. The owners got rich. The players didn't. And, I, and that's something I hear a lot about even these days with the NFL. You know, with the fact that the owners make a lot of money and most of the players earn very very little. This was an era in baseball, and that would continue for another few decades, where the players had to get jobs during the offseason to live. So you can really sympathize with these guys as to why they might want to throw the World Series, because they were playing with somebody who they viewed as their enemy. Like, they hated their boss more than they hated the other team, so why not throw the World Series to screw that guy? That's uh, It's almost like an amateur sport, then. Yeah, unless you're an owner, because you're making piles and piles of money. Exactly, exactly. You know, up until uh, the 90s over here, um, rugby was an amateur sport. So people were working in the day and then playing, training at night and then playing on the weekends. So it's almost like that. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I know these guys are like doing the game of their dreams, but it's also really unfair to ask them to destroy their bodies for our entertainment and then not pay them enough for it. Mm, exactly, exactly. I think one of the, the powerful thing about Eight Men Out is this idea that you know, who was really involved. John Cusack's character, is it Bucky Weaver? Yeah, Buck yeah. Weaver, yeah. Buck Weaver. He, uh, throughout, he maintains his innocent, but the fact he knew about it means that he was guilty of it. Yeah, yeah. he's a character, I think, Eight Men Out really, I think, singles him out as someone who's treated extremely unfairly. Because, you know, as as much as he wasn't involved in the fixing scandal, he was still a member of this team. And I think for most of their career, they were united together against the owners. And so even if he didn't want to throw the game, he also didn't want to betray the confidence of his teammates. And especially at a time when trades were much rarer, you really formed a bond with these guys. Even if you like might hate them, um, they're still your teammates. So it's totally within reason why he would not want to go to the cops uh, especially when Arnold Rothstein is at the other end of that, a very powerful underworld figure. You wouldn't go to the cops against your team in that situation. It seems to me that uh, the whole thing was ripe for exploitation and the players, I think the whole point of the film is that the players, whilst 
they were the obvious victims and people like Rothstein, for, for somebody like that, it was a, an easy fix. Yeah, there's just so many vulnerabilities in baseball at the time for corruption. It's, you know, as powerful as um, the underworld was at the time, uh, organized crime, um, as corruptible as the owners were, as much gambling was going on in those very stands. Yeah. There were just, it was almost unavoidable that this sort of thing would happen. And I, and for me personally, you know, with the steroid scandal and with the, um, the recent, uh, scandal, of the Houston Astros, it's, it's incriminating upon baseball itself to not recognize these elements, uh, within its own organization that it, it fails to police itself until it becomes untenable and the public knows about these, you know, various misdeeds. So I think, so organized crime, the owners and then baseball itself are the real um, antagonists of this movie. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, we've discussed the, the CD side, the, of uh, baseball in that respect, the pride of the Yankees is a very different film, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Oh, uh, one r- real quick thing that I, I loved about Amen Out was that John Sales and Studs Terkel, uh, appear as sports writers. Uh, Stud Circle is is a, a legendary uh, a journalist in America. Um, he really pioneered the sort of like oral history way of doing journalism, um, doing interviews with people and putting their words, uh, bring their words to life. And so it's it's great to see him riff off of like a, an actual legendary journalist in this movie. So yeah, and John Sales is always good to uh, to watch. I think he's uh, he's an underrated actor. I think. I, I think so too. Yeah, he's he's great. Um, yeah. Um, the one and only Bill Scurry posted on Twitter that it's been way too long since the last John Sales film, and I I agree. Yes, yeah. He is doing a, uh, a podcast recently with Joe Dante, the uh, movies that made me a pandemic yeah. special. That's worth uh, checking out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So anyway, Pride, Pride of the Yankees is a very different film because this looks at one of the heroes of baseball and it doesn't you know it's not interested in bringing him down it's not interested in the dark side or the seedy side this is interested in looking at one of the great heroes and putting him on a pedestal it really puts him on a pedestal there's this there's this opening opening crawl uh, that talks about by Damon Runyon that compares uh Lou Gehrig and says that he he faced death with the same valor and fortitude by thousands of young Americans on the field of battle. Oh. And so for like this movie came out in 1942, so for him to say that Lou Gehrig playing baseball is as brave as soldiers going to to World War II, it's a little much. But Gehrig is a legend, no, no question. Is it um, perhaps tied with the fact that uh, baseball is so well, it's romanticized so much that even back then in 1942, people would accept that? Um, yeah, well, at this time, baseball was America's sport. Like, it was the thing. Uh, and a lot of these players, um, especially Gehrig, who had only died like a year previous, uh, were really deified. Tell us who uh, Lou Gehrig was then. Yeah, so uh, Lou Gehrig was uh, a legendary uh, first baseman for the Yankees, uh, born in 1903. He was a six-time World Series champion, seven-time All-Star, two-time MVP, uh, one of the only people to win the Triple Crown. That means you lead in batting average, home runs, and runs batted in. Uh, Lifetime, 344 batting average, uh, 493 home runs. So, yeah, he was an extraordinary player. Uh, But the reason a lot of people know about, especially over here, is because of the disease which took his life. Lou Gehrig's disease, more accurately called uh, ALS. So it's a debilitating disorder that that, that takes your uh, control of your own nervous system away uh, pretty rapidly um, if it's not treated. 
Uh, and so Lou Gehrig had would die pretty soon after it was treated. But um, for but Stephen Hawking, for example, had it for years because of you know modern medical technology. Yeah. So over here, we it's referred to as motor neuron disease. Yeah. So uh, you know the, the film st- um, tells the story of Lou Gehrig, played by the great Gary Cooper, who is an icon in himself. And it starts off as a young boy, and he discovers he can hit the ball better than you know uh, in the backyard. Uh, and then he becomes a player, and uh, he becomes one of the greatest. And then the last twenty minutes of the film, he starts to develop these complications, which he faces stoically and with you know with courage, as the film is basically trying to tell us. And uh, yeah, I, I still found it quite moving and uh, still entertaining throughout the cast is really great in this uh teresa wright uh, plays his wife she's an oscar nominee um for 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 this movie but she was also in his miniver and uh, little foxes her chemistry with gary cooper was really sort of delightful because she's very like light and energetic and gary cooper is he could be a little stone-faced i mean he's he's (laughs) yeah he's he's outstanding and he's incredibly sort of enigmatic um but but to see the two of them together sort of play off each other i think is is really sweet and he also had babe ruth in it yeah yeah you got to see babe ruth you got to see uh gary cooper eat a hat as a prank so there is a lot to like in this movie definitely well, yes, the fact that um, Gary Cooper is plays a character who is so naive that he was willing to fall for a prank like that, and yet you still like him. I think that's uh, yeah a compliment to him. Also in the film, and I have to admit, right, I didn't know this at the beginning because my uh, internet kept on going out, so I, I uh, the film kept on jumping. But there was one character there, and all the way through, I thought, I don't recognize this man, but he sounds just like Walter Brennan. <laughs> and it was. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't recognize him at all. A shaved, clean cut, uh, sober Walter Brennan. I don't know if I can take this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All the way through, I was thinking, well, he sounds like him, but who is he? And he, and he was the great Walter Brennan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his presence is always welcome in any film. Yeah, so th- that is what is great about a lot of movies from this era, that they're just great character actors flitting around, making movies better. Walter Brennan, always welcome. It is, yes, yeah. Yeah, so I also watched Bull Durham, which I think is, you know, that's great. It's unique, I think, in the movies that we're talking about here because I think it's, you know, it's very adult uh, in its language and in its themes. It, it directly addresses, like, sex and and um but but also it it talks about um identity and going for your dreams and and loving something that doesn't love you back and how to kind of l- learn to deal with that because Kevin Costner's character is somebody who really loves baseball but he's just not good enough um he's just barely not enough to make it to the majors and t- we get to see him kind of deal with that and then of course Susan Sarandon is incredible in it and Tim Robbins is incredible in it so yeah that's the um, film where Tim Robbins ends up wearing a woman's uh, is a garter just for good luck. Yeah, or to to get his his brain to stop being right brain and start being left brain or something something like that. Uh, well, it, it's a movie that like appeals to me on several levels because Susan Sarandon talks about her love for baseball, but also quotes William Blake poetry. So I'm all in on Bull Durham. Not as good as Field of Dreams, but. Yeah, she's she's a bit of a, a, a contrast because on the one hand, uh, you mean she she seems to be a character who sleeps with a lot of the um, players, but uh, and she's small town, but she's highly educated and um, classical. 
Yeah, um, I think at one point she says she, as much as she rejects Judeo-Christian values, strictly speaking within the realms of the baseball season, I am monogamous. Yeah, she's a really interesting character. That's a very good... I I know that when when Kevin Costner first was considered for Feel of Dreams, uh, they thought that Bull Durham would be a bit of a... would hamper him because, you know, the idea of doing two baseball movies in a row. But Kevin Costner was the one who put himself forward and said, no, I want to do this because he thought that Field of Dreams could be a it's a wonderful life for his generation. Yeah. But that that's quite, you know, he was still a young actor at the time. He was still um he was still making it in the business. Well, I suppose to have the guts and the, and the temerity to actually make two baseball movies in the in a row and not wait, be worried about typecasting, you know, you gotta give it to him. You've got to hand it to him, I think. Yeah, and I think uh, and I do like him a lot in Bull Durham, and he plays a very different character. You know, Crash Davis is somebody who had doesn't have as many moral scruples as Ray Kinsella does, um, but he gives that great, like, I believe speech in there to Susan Sarandon. That's sort of, you know, one of the most quotable lines um, in movie history, I think. In my, there's so many quotable lines in Bull Durham. Um, it's, it's, it's great. And how can you not like a character called Crash? Yeah, that's another thing that I love about baseball is the the nicknames like Crash Davis. And what better name for an old-time baseball player than Moonlight Graham? Oh, Perfect. Yeah. Fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Lou Gehrig was known. Was he Iron Man? Yeah, yes, yeah, Iron Man. Iron yeah, because Man. yeah, I think one of the great ironies of his career is that he set the record for most consecutive games, a record that stood for decades until Cal Ripken broke it. Uh, but then of, he was forced out of the game because of health reasons. So for somebody who willed his body through pain to keep playing baseball, he, his body eventually betrayed him. And I think that's like the great tragedy of, of his story. Another film I saw recently, which I have to say I really, really enjoyed, and it's a very different film again. And this shows the breadth of some of these films. You know, they're all about baseball. They're all about the love of the game. But the breadth that you can have of uh, storylines was Angels in the Outfield. Yeah. Did you manage to catch that? I did. Yeah, it's. Um, I think like Lou Gehr- uh, like um, Pride of the Yankees, it, it is a, a bit of a, a sentiment, a sentimental journey uh, that's a relic of the time. But I, I did end up really liking it. Well, even the angels in heaven, you know, the heavenly choir supports yeah. uh, baseball. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. So I saw that a, a league of their own and uh, the natural league of their own. Tom Hanks. Yeah, and that, Madonna. Like, that that's I like all these movies. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, A League of Their Own, I think, is such a, a charming comedy. Um, it's it's a real an, an, another story of people like using baseball as a way to kind of tell the story of a downtrodden group, um, people fighting against larger forces or forces larger than themselves, like like in Eight Men Out or uh, in Bingo Long. Um, and this is about a women's league. Yes, yes. So how many if, leagues if were there? There are quite a few, actually. But yeah, so in. World War II, because all the men, including many baseball players, had gone off to war, uh, there was a organization that started a female uh, baseball league, All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which lasted from 1943 to 1954. Yeah, so A League of Their Own is directed by Penny Marshall, who co-wrote this, the screenplay, uh, written by Lil Gantz and Barbara Mandel. Uh, but Penny Marshall did Jump Jack Flash big. It's such like a feel-good kind of like friendship comedy. And Tom Hanks is so goddamn funny in this movie. He really puts forth like a great character actor performance that he just almost damages the film how good he is because he he takes focus away from the main story. But like everything he says is just so funny. 
and he plays a, a a very gruff alcoholic, doesn't he? So it's a yeah. different kind of role to what we normally associate with Tom Hanks these days. Yeah, this was at a time. This was before Philadelphia, um, but this is after the Burbs, Bonfire of the Vanities, and Joe vs. the Volcano. And like Joe vs. the Volcano is great. The Burbs is a masterpiece. I'm glad you're saying that because uh, yeah. you wouldn't be allowed, you know, anywhere near no. film eighty nine if you didn't think that. I would have no right to be, but all praise and glory to Joe Dante. But those three movies were pretty high profile failures financially. Mm-hmm. So going into this movie, Tom Hanks was kind of like on the outs, I think. And so it's interesting to look back on that, like him putting forth this incredible supporting actor performance that that might have set the stage for the rest of his career. So, you know, as, as great as he as he is in The Burbs, it was a movie that a lot of people rejected at the time, unfortunately. I'm just grateful for this movie because I think you, you also see how great Madonna is and how great Rosie O'Donnell is uh, as this kind of comedic duo. And so people who like to bash them for various justified or unjustified reasons, there's still this movie to point like, no, there's great things that these performers have given us. And if, I mean, the cultural impact of, of Madonna is almost second to none at this point, but people say that she's a crappy actor. Well, watch this movie and watch her be great in it. I think part of the reason why people, you know, do have a go at Madonna when it comes to acting is because A, she hasn't done a great deal. And B, I think her personality away from cinema sometimes is quite overbearing and it's difficult to, to separate the two. Yeah. And there are also things like Body of Evidence, which is very bad yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> oh one thing i think is an interesting parallel between a league of their own and uh bingo long if anybody's interested in in seeking out bingo long is that um there is this balance that the female baseball players have to strike between putting on a show and playing well like they they have to look pretty for the cameras they have to wear, they have to play in skirts uh, they have to you know do their hair and put on makeup while playing a sport and they, they sort of have to push up against that and to try and justify their own existence um, to the powers that be. Uh, and, and I think that's what makes this um, movie a, a little more than like a, a frivolous comedy. Not that there's anything wrong with a frivolous comedy, but this is a movie that does have something to say. I, mean, I haven't seen Legally Alone, I have to admit, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. However, I still remember it. And I don't think that it, it doesn't seem to have the following today that a lot of these films have. However, it was it's still a very entertaining film. I think it would make a very good double bill with Bingo Long, definitely, because it it, it both the what the two films have in common is that they show two different sides of baseball, which is easily overlooked. You know, when we look at all the the stats and the great players like the Lou Gehrig's and the Babe Ruth's and the scandals and everything. It's easy to forget, as you said, the Negro League, the women's leagues. It's easy to look over things like that. Yeah. And Tom Hanks has a has a, I mean I know the no crime in baseball bit is like the most famous part of this movie, but he he does have this great exchange with Gina Davis's character, which I think is we're we're, ta- we're talking baseball. So here's Tom Hanks talking baseball is when he says baseball is what gets inside you. It's what lights you up. You can't deny that. And Gina Davis says it just got too hard. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. So if you haven't seen, if anybody out there is looking for Tom Hanks to monologue about baseball. League of Their Own is a movie for you. There seems to be a lot of these uh, monologues about baseball within these baseball films. Yeah, um, it's only appropriate. So I suppose to sum up then today, what is it? I, I know you're, you're a lover of baseball and from a personal point of view, but what do you think it is that the reason why there's so many great baseball movies and not other sports? Because I was thinking about it and I can think of baseball and I can think of boxing 
But even though there's been films which have mentioned lots of other other sports, for some reason, boxing and baseball seems to be the two reigning champions. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, well, boxing movies is a whole other discussion that we we could, I mean, yeah, we we could talk for six hours on the Rocky movie. (laughs) just If if Um, Neil came along, yes, we would, yes. But yeah, I think there's just... There's just so many ways to approach baseball from a cinematic point of view. Like you can look at the sort of the, the gods of the game, um, like I think the natural tries to do, or or the way that Pride of the Yankees does, Feel the Dreams does, or you could look at the people who are barely scraping by um, and tr- just trying to do it to, because they love it, like Bingo Wong or a League of Their Own or Bull Durham, um, and and because it goes back so far, uh, you can really just take so many themes of what makes America America and then you can make any baseball movie about America. Um, and I'm not saying there's no great other sports movies. I mean, you have like Hoosiers, um, you have uh, Slapshot, and I think the Goon movies are, are great comedies for hockey fans. But I, there's just something special about the way baseball translates to cinema that I think makes it stand on its own. I think that one thing it has in common with boxing is that even though it's a, a team sport, Ultimately, each play comes down to one man versus another man, one mm-hmm. pitcher, one hitter. That way, you can concentrate on the inner demons of those you know, individuals, same as you can with boxing. Whether it's you know Rocky is the hitter, Dolph Lundgren is you know going to be throwing in these pitches at him, and it's the inner demons. It's what they have to overcome you know to get there. It's the love of the sport. It's got, it's got the whole package and it does come down to one person looking at another person trying to psych them out and that psychological edge which in another team sport like football or soccer or anything like that because they are part of a team and because it's much quicker in terms for example soccer it's very difficult to get those moments when one person is staring another person down because it doesn't happen very often because you you know it's it's the passing back and forth, the person doesn't get the ball for that long. And I think that's one thing that baseball has and boxing have that other t- sports don't from a cinematic point of view. Yeah, what's more cinematic than a pitcher staring down at, at a hitter? Because you have two samurais staring down at, at each other, you know, w- w- with swords in hand, two gunmen in a Western staring down at each other. Hell, the space between two gunmen, you know, standing off at high noon is about the same space between a pitcher and a batter. So we're, we're primed to be engaged with that language cinematically. Uh, and, and I think it just makes for makes for great drama. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the standoff, um, whether it's in a spaghetti western or high noon with, you know, Gary Cooper again. It's just two people, you know, you could you can see it have a close-up of a face, you can see the sweat pouring off, you can see the tension in their faces, you can see the fear, you can see the, the arrogance, you can see all these things where in another sport where it's a team sport and they pass the ball back and forth, perhaps everything happens so quickly, you can't get that. Yeah, and especially in football, where as popular as it is in America, everybody has a helmet on. So it's it's not a sport conducive to a movie. No, exactly, exactly. It all depends on the name on the back of the shirt and the number, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I think we've covered baseball and baseball movies quite extensively today and yet we probably haven't even touched the surface of all the films that be made yeah yeah there's there's also like the sandlot and uh, moneyball yeah there's there's many many great baseball movies out there so and they present baseball in a very different way moneyball for example is all about the business of it and that does go into stats hugely yeah that's that's a movie about more about stats than it is about baseball 
Yes, it is. It is. So, John, if anybody wants to contact you, where do they go? You can find me at Quasar Sniffer at both uh, Twitter and Instagram, where I tweet a bunch about movies and comics, and I'm interested in any sort of conversation about those topics that you got. Come at me, internet. <laughs> where did you get that name from, Quasar Sniffer? Um, I love space stuff and science, and I also love being self-deprecating. So I sort of, if I can combine the most epic thing in the universe and something sort of silly and ridiculous, I, I thought I could encapsulate my interest. It's a fantastic thank- tag, it is. Th- th- thank you. <laughs> yeah, you can contact me on, um, it's at Welsh Bluesman, which I think is more obvious uh, you know, I'm Welsh and I like the blues. That's it. It's nothing awesome. grandiose or self-deprecating about it, I'm afraid. Uh, that's on Twitter or Stephen Amos on Facebook. And, of course, at Film89UK for all the news, the buzz, posters of the day, the shots of the day, everything Film89, of course, and all the reviews, news, and podcasts all in one place. So I hope you enjoyed this episode today. I hope we've hit it out of the park for you. Yes. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, uh, everybody stay safe at this um, worrying time. And I hope that we've taken your mind off all the, the worries and the, the issues in the world for at least uh, well, the last hour and a half. So, uh, everybody, thanks very much. Thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.